Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those that go or don't go to church and for those that are just disillusioned. You can contact us by email ogc at accessradio.biz and biz is spelt B-I-Z. And check out also, please, our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity. Our guest today is a certified spiritual director. But what does that actually mean? He's known also as the Rapping Chaplain and has a new album out soon called Midlife Crisis. What exactly, though, has hip-hop got to do with working in a hospice? What are his thoughts on grieving and how do you grieve? It gives me great pleasure to welcome today's guest, Quill the Messenger, but his daytime name is Jeremy Bryan. And thanks, by the way, Jeremy, because of what happened when we were recording three, four weeks ago. It was an absolute <laughs> nightmare, as we say. And you were very gracious in trying to sort out your end. And we're back again for part two or part one. Point and two. it gave us a chance to get to know each other a little bit, Martin, beforehand. We did. We had a great <laughs> chat. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll tell your story again that you told me afterwards about the Inklings and what happened in oh, a yes. certain pub. Oh, can't wait. But before we get to the Inklings, and people are saying, who are the Inklings? Oh, you'll find out soon. Let's do our five questions. So if you're sitting comfortably, then I shall begin. Question number one, Jeremy. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Well, once we talked about the Inklings, I, you know, went to all of them, my favorite characters there. But my most honest answer is Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher and the gadfly of Denmark, as he called himself. Gadfly? (laughs) What does that mean? Never heard that. Well, he compared himself to Socrates and considered himself a provocateur, someone who meant to ask questions and and probe to the very depths of Christianity and faith. And so he felt it his role to kind of stir up and, you know, cause problems, good trouble, as John Lewis calls it. <laughs> ah, great answer. I did read somewhere, someone was actually questioning whether Son Kierkegaard was actually a Christian. I, maybe they were just doing a, a gadfly sort of thing. What, what do you know about that? Well, I could see that he was considered the father of existentialist philosophy, whatever that means. I think it's because he was trying to dig down to the subjective reality that was often neglected in light of convention, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. forgetting about faith as a wellspring from within. And he was trying to dig that deep. And when you dig that deep into the human condition, uh, you come across some crazy stuff, which some Christians might be offended by. So some of what Kierkegaard deals with could be considered on its surface unchristian. But once you go behind the veil of what he's up to, you realize, no, this is the most Christian way forward mm. is to be deeply honest about all the vicissitudes of the human condition. In other words, he was questioning everything. Yes. Wow. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. So we'll put in the tick box there next to, yes, we think he was. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Question two. Who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable, please, Jeremy? Well, my favorite parable is the treasure hidden in the field. And the reason it's my favorite is because growing up evangelical in sort of a conventional environment where the pressure was pretty much on you to get it right before God, this idea of God being the the main character in the parables came to me at one point. And that parable, for some reason, wasn't me 
running into a field and, and tripping along and finding a treasure and then running and selling everything I had to buy that field. It was inspired by Abraham Heschel, God in search of man. It was God uh, wandering the field of earth and tripping on some of his creation and saying, whoa, I'm in love with, I'm delighted in humanity. And therefore I'm going to sell my heavenly inheritance and go to earth to be with my people. So I think that that shift of perspective freed me up. And ever since then, I've been sharing that parable with youth and with myself when I need reminders. <laughs> what kind of reminders do you need then? Well, I think, again, growing up with that pressure of you have to sort of manufacture faith, you have to come up with it. Mm. This sort of self-made faith idea that I don't think was taught explicitly, but it was implicit in a lot of what I was raised in. I think there was freedom for me to be reminded that before I seek to hold or to grasp mm -hmm. God, he's already holding and grasping me. I'm already held in grace before I seek to achieve or promote or evangelize or any of the above. Excellent. Thank you. Question three. If you were prime minister today and could change any law, or if you were president of the United States of America, what law would you impose or what would you like to change? What would you do, good sir? Well, I'm going to be president of the United States of America, and I'm going to institute more holidays that don't necessarily have a specific cultural justification, more mm -hmm. of... We need to learn from countries who honor rest as a way of life, who take time to reflect and consider, because for us, I think in America, work is how we kind of earn our value, our sense of, of inner value and outer value. And we need a lot of help learning about Sabbath rest, about Jubilee. What does it mean to be free from debt, to yeah. release others from debt? That's a big debate in our country now. Some people scolding President Biden for trying to forgive some of the student debt that's accumulated. And there are the, no, we should not pay for another's debt. And I find that to be ironic in what some consider a Christian nation, you know, or have attempted to argue in that direction that the idea of Jubilee or Sabbath is something anti-Christian when in fact it's the wellspring of Christianity yeah. from my vantage point. It would have to do with something with Jubilee, debt forgiveness, and more holiday. Wow. Funny enough, uh, my Bible notes I'm using at the moment, we're going through Leviticus, in my case, <laughs> going through Leviticus quite slowly, very slowly. Wow. <laughs> but we're talking about Jubilee in there at the moment. And of course, if you'd like to have more holidays, then come to the United Kingdom. We have loads of them up here, also known as uh, strikes. <laughs> hey, all right. <laughs> Sometimes Sabbath needs to be a revolt. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, yeah. I'm with that. My wife would love to, to live in England. So, Why is that then? Oh, because I think the way of life, I think what we're talking about, this sort of pace of life that honors both the robust joy of doing good work, but also knowing how to celebrate and knowing how to enter your history. You know, I think... Our favorite literature, our favorite stories come from England and Ireland. So I think part of us feel it's our spiritual home and we want to be there, you know. Yeah, I think plenty of people in this country be saying, it sounds like Britain's like America, really. <laughs> <laughs> because, but hey, 
I know what you mean. Uh, question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please, good sir? Well, last week, my daughter was on spring break from her school, and we took the day together. It was bright and sunny, 70 degrees, which is my very favorite temperature. Yeah. We woke up. Uh, my daughter sort of had the day planned out, so she asked for an omelet, which she said she'd never had one before, so <laughs> I was tasked with her first omelet. I did very well. Basic, you know, just eggs and cheese. How old is she? And she's 10. Right, okay. And she and I have been reading, back to the Inklings again, we've been reading The Lord of the Rings. And that day was very special because they re-released The Return of the King, the film, in theaters for that day. Oh, wow. As part of the 20th anniversary of its release. And so our whole day was planned around a Hobbit-style picnic and this film before that however after breakfast we hopped on our bikes and we hit the bike path all the way to the lakefront in milwaukee we have wonderful beaches and this place called discovery world which is like a science center so we spent some time there and then we biked to get some ice cream and then we met up with our friends another father and daughter for this picnic and we had irish bangers and tomatoes we had strawberry shortcake. We had cheese. We had this wonderful Hobbit-style picnic with ale for the grown-ups and root, root beer for the little ones. And then we went to see this movie from you know 7 to like 11.30 because it was the extended edition. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, ale really, in Milwaukee? Sorry, I thought Milwaukee was famous for Coors or Molson or something. Yeah, that's the basic beer. We've got a lot of uh, independent kind of boutique breweries now who make these pale ales and these you know, delicious concoctions. Yeah. You see, you are getting more and more British. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. That sounds like a brilliant day out. It was. Trouble is you have to cycle home afterwards. That's the problem. <laughs> Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Well, I'm remembering my graduate degree and... I had, you know, come back from the workforce and from starting an initiative that I was fairly confident in. So I was coming out of the space of confidence. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Wow. I started something. It's going pretty well. Now I'm going back to grad school to sharpen my skills and expand my repertoire. And my first class was with some high level thinkers. And the, the assignment had us uh, looking at two prominent thinkers, right? So we were looking, I think, at Kenneth Burke and Rene Girard. And I thought I'm going to dive deep into their work and do my presentation on sort of a comparative study of their main ideas. So here I am on the board. I've everyone else had kind of sat down to share their part. I'm at the, I'm at the board and I've I've got diagrams. I've got a whole thing going. And my professor and some of the students, when it's time for feedback, they were like, "Well, that's a wonderful comparative study, but where are the transferable insights?" And in that moment, my face went beet red because, yes, I had compared their ideas, but I had not considered what import they have for the purpose of the rhetoric class that we were in. Uh, I was new to the study of rhetoric. And so their whole thing is transferable insights. How does this move from their world into the 21st century? And in that moment, there was a gap in my understanding and I did the assignment completely wrong. <laughs> I just compared their ideas. I didn't I didn't try to like bring it into the moment. 
I was very embarrassed. But what it did is kick off like, oh, this is what graduate school is. There are different expectations. Yeah. A little intellectual exercise of comparison is not enough. You have to go further. And so that embarrassment opened up a hunger for learning in a fresh way. And of course, you said you did it deliberately afterwards because the lecturer asked you to do that. <laughs> right, exactly. I was. It was a you know lesson that I was <laughs> told to attempt. Well, if it's any consolation, I didn't understand the question. I didn't understand who the other two people were either. So, <laughs> <laughs> and rhetoric sounds more like Roderick, but anyway. Yeah, they were kind of Kierkegaard's heirs in some ways. Their intellectual experiments and explorations, I, I think of as related to Kierkegaard's work as well. Okay, can we leave that for a later date, please? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's too intellectual for me this time of night. Daytime over there in Milwaukee at the moment. I'm getting revved up. You are. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> before we look more into what you actually do for a living, just to clear something up, in one of the answers you said your family and talk about yourself and the self-made faith what did you mean by that sir well evangelical anxiety is the ethos in which i grew up which means faith was very much a personal thing mm -hmm. that you had to bring to life you had to show that you were a faith-filled person so there was a lot of pressure so for me as the firstborn son of a pastor ah. i had to memorize large portions of scripture and my Friday nights were not spent hanging out, you know, playing basketball with friends or watching movies. It was going to Bible quizzing in which you have to show forth the memorized scriptures that you have. And it's sort of a competitive approach to Bible study. <laughs> wow. Which if you think of America and that probably jives with your sense of the culture here, it's like everything is a competition. <laughs> and so, even faith kind of fits in there for good and ill, I think mostly ill there. But though I had wonderful experiences, I had this anxiety that, you know, like to be a superstar in Christianity, you had to show forth your faith in a way that was extraordinary. Really? It couldn't be ordinary. It couldn't just fit a rhythm of a quiet life. It had to be dynamic and colorful and charismatic and you know, it had to be at the pulpit. It had to be on stage. It had to be on the, you know, whatever. So that's what I mean really is that pressure some of us feel to manifest our faith in a way that's beyond what yeah. God's even asking of us, you know? <laughs> wow. Do you know what? You just saying that reminded me why, oh, at 20, 25 years ago now, I went to a friend's house and there was a, a Bible study group going off for the youngsters. They were running as a youth group and I walked in there. And it was a, a very, very brash young lady from America who was the youth leader for the big church or for a town even. And I walked in and she said, and I can't do the accent, so please forgive me. I'm hoping so. <laughs> but basically, in a very southern drawl, she said, Martin, tell me your testimony. That was the first thing she said. Wow. So in light of what you're saying, I thought, right, OK, I just made one up out of the <laughs> <laughs> You know, surviving a plane crash and all that sort of stuff. Now, it most probably is wrong, but I think that's what you're alluding to, really. It is, it? yeah. With with testimonies, especially, there was a one-upmanship. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you were that sinful and you got saved? Well, I better have been more sinful and been saved, you know? <laughs> wow. Did it help you at all in later no, life? No. I mean, 
I could see where it might have helped with as a rapper who had to later in life learn how to battle other rappers. I think I learned some skills of facing off with others and kind of one upping yeah. sometimes. So I think that came in useful, but I'm not sure how much of that is related to Bible quizzing or just to my uh, pugilistic nature. Yeah. <laughs> it was supposed in your teenage years when you want to go out and maybe chat up a nice few young ladies. It's not, it's, <laughs> it's not a good way of doing it really, is it? Not great. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> However, what about growing up, though, as a pastor's son or a PK, as we often call them over here, you know, preacher's kid? How influential was that for you? Very. I love oratory. I loved hearing my father speak. I loved listening intently to other speakers. And I was given opportunities to, you know, get up and play piano or rap or speak. Yeah. So I think there was room, room made for me to explore my own gifts in that setting. So beautiful on some level, but I think the generation of that my parents, you know, were part of ministry came before everything else. Mm. And because of that, the fallout in terms of family culture, depth of relationship, there's a lot of things that fall to the wayside when it's all about getting butts in the seats at church, when it's all about, you know, throwing an event versus building relationships, you know? So I think I sensed those discrepancies and, love my family and we're very close, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about, yeah, I think that generation, and this could have happened in any kind of vocation. If work comes before family, it's hard to build a quality life on the inside. I know exactly what you mean. For those that are listening today, then, maybe a a PK themselves, a preacher's kid, or alternatively, are working too hard and are trying to get the life balance In light of what you had to go through then, what would you say? I would say take a deep breath and remember that Sabbath is the center. Even as you're, Martin, studying Leviticus and looking at the ancient economy of Israel, that Jubilee and Sabbath was central. Mm. And that when it gets time for exile, one of the main reasons given for exile was like, you didn't take enough time off. You didn't rest, you know, you didn't let the land breathe. You didn't let your soul breathe. You didn't host one another very well. So I think we're mostly called to host one another. Well, what does it mean to host yourself, your own inner life and listen to your life? What does it mean to host your wife or your husband, whoever you're in relationship with and spend a lot of time prioritizing that relationship? Mm. What does it mean to host God when God asks us to take Sabbath, to really take time for quality time? I think I was just reading a a study. Harvard did a study in Boston. 90 years, they studied multiple families from Boston, some from poor neighborhoods, some graduates from Harvard. And consistently throughout, those who spent more time cultivating their family relationships and their friends... They had the sort of most fulfilling life overall in terms of both length of life, but also quality of life. And I think when we feel this pressure to be the center, when in fact we're meant to be orbiting, it's like I think of the Sabbath as the sun and we're the we're the beloved earth orbiting that. Yeah, yeah. We're not forcing the sun to orbit 
our priorities and our mission. It's like, no, 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 just let it be. Take a breath and let yourself orbit God's love for you. And what is that? How does that look like for you on a weekly basis? You know, well, funny you say that because I have uh, had the privilege today of organizing a future podcast with someone who I do actually know quite well. So I was able to say what I'm about to say to him. We were trying to get a date. He said, oh, this bloody, blah, 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 blah. I'm just too busy. And I said, in the immortal words of a well-known televangelist who I heard him say this once, he said, God didn't create busy. I caught him flat on that. <laughs> so what do you think about that expression then? God didn't create busy. For those that might be listening to me and think, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing all this, I'm doing that. Yeah, that connects to kind of the story of my family and growing up as a PK you would have thought God created busy, right? Because the more busy you were for God, the more you could, again, show forth your faith. Yes. But when I discovered Sabbath and rhythms of rest and contemplative spirituality, I quickly realized, yeah, I think that's true. I think God created Sabbath and delight, and we were meant to orbit delight and orbit joy and not force that to sort of be a butterfly you know, in our mix somewhere, but no, it's the sunshine. It's the very thing we're orbiting. So I think God created rest and we were meant to build from rest and work from and not for rest. Like that's a big shift for me. I used to work for the weekend, right? And now I live in such a way where I'm working from rest and that can happen throughout the seven day cycle. It doesn't have to be predictable or conventional, but it is restful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That would then link in very nicely, especially as you went to university and everything else, to get a a degree, I believe it was in English, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Literature. Fantastic. With all that in mind, how did rapping come into it? Why get involved in rap and hip hop? And of course, we'll then talk about how that morphed itself for you into working in a hospice full time. So how did you get involved in rapping, first of all? Yeah, so my folks were urban missionaries. They felt a call from God to move from rural Vermont into inner city Syracuse, New York. And that's a big shift. And so I grew up in a setting where hip hop as a culture and rap as an expression was just cresting from New York City and crashing into Syracuse. And you could hear all the new music coming out of New York City where hip hop started. What years are we talking about? When oh, yeah. We are talking 80s, so mid-80s and all the way into the early 90s was kind of when I was becoming immersed. However, I was not allowed to listen to any of it. I could only hear it coming out of cars or because my neighborhood was in the hood, I could hear it in lots of places, but I couldn't listen to it myself until I got a Walkman, if you remember those. (laughs) (laughs) And then my parents no longer had as much control or curative power over my kind of what I listened to. But I did listen to a lot of Christian rap. But then I also discovered the mainstream and the underground and fell in love with the music and thought, wow, this is the best verbal expression I've ever heard of what happens in a pulpit on a Sunday morning, but feels way more relevant than preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah. Like It felt like this way of expressing over rhythm was a way to bring the word of God and bring the best insights of poetry and literature to bear on the present moment. And so my goal became to sort of translate, if you will, my favorite insights from scripture 
And in my literature studies, my favorite insights from poetry and novels, what would it look like to translate that thrill you get when you discover, whoa, this is what life is about, but experience it through hip hop music. So that became kind of my primary expression. That was how I create, I didn't journal. I wrote hip hop verse. That's how I kind of connected the dots for myself. Ah, not wanting to denigrate at all your parents, but if they moved from Vermont, which I, I think I've ever seen once or twice on TV and films, I think our holiday in comes to mind. And so you've got this lovely, beautiful place, and then you go right into Syracuse, New York, and they want to be urban missionaries. Isn't it a bit strange that your parents are saying, well, you can't listen to hip-hop and, or whatever was coming out musically? Yeah. In America, especially in the 90s, Christian parents took a burden on themselves to be sort of the cultural curators and the guardians for their kids. And their approach, unfortunately, I think, was we have to protect them mm -hmm. from these influences rather than let's experience these influences together and talk about them as we go. Yes. That's the big shift is I wanted someone to enter my world with me and experience it with me because you can't you can't really protect that well, especially where we live. <laughs> It was only a matter of time. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was it was kind of a contradiction in experience there because I wanted to experience life at its at its heart, and I thought the way to do that was being blocked from me. And so, what you know could have been open conversation was sort of a hushed, like, no, yeah. that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. However, you kept on with it, and eventually, you know, you started to. Mm -hmm do quite well on the hip-hop scene and everything else. But I'd like to know more now, really, because in my biog of your good self, I said that you were known as a rapping chaplain. How did all That's that right. come about, please? Tell us more. Yeah, a career as a rapper, I don't know how sustainable it is. It was pretty sustainable for me for about 20 years. I was able to rap for a living and make most of the money to feed my family through making music and performing music. Wow. However, the unpredictability of the gig economy necessitated that I find other work, right? So yeah. I worked with youth a lot after school programming, mentorship, a child psychologist kind of caught wind of what I and my friends were up to. And we created music for kids. And that became kind of the way forward for us is we created an album for elementary school, middle school, high school, and took that into schools all over the place. So our concerts were mostly like 500 kids in a gym, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we were, we're rocking for them. And then we're connecting with the teachers to inspire them a little bit. We're connecting with the students to help them write their own songs. And so I became somewhat of the rap and chaplain through this experience of going into schools and churches and then becoming a youth pastor myself for many years and being a chaplain in different schools as well. That became kind of the way I operated was I'm a rapper, but I also bring kind of a spiritual depth to the conversation. I want to expand our spiritual imagination and rapping is how I do it. So the most recent iteration of that mm -hmm. is when I did need a job, the pandemic kind of hit hard and I couldn't tour. I couldn't do any of that. And I started working for a hospice company and found myself with the elderly sitting with them and with their families as they're approaching the end of life. 
and having to shut up a little more and just be silent, listen, be present. And yet I found there was room also for my verbal gifts in some of these settings. And so the hospice company, they're the ones who actually dubbed me the rap and chaplain because I would bring my kind of hip hop flavor to the work I was doing with people. I would Mm -hmm. sometimes freestyle a prayer for them and bless them and rhyme. Could you give us an example of that? Well, um, so freestyle is where you just make something up off the top of your head. And I'm sitting bedside and I'm wondering, what can I do with this person who's having a tough time, right? They're approaching the end. They might not even be able to speak at this moment. Or if they're speaking, it's minimal. Then I get to sing for them or freestyle. And so I would take their name and what I knew about them. And I would create a rhyme spontaneously to encourage them to sort of cheer them on on their journey into God. And so I found myself doing that for some of our patients, for staff. (laughs) If it was like a birthday celebration, I'd I'd freestyle for one of our staff members, kind of highlighting some of the attributes I admire about them through rhyme. Wow. So come then, do something about off-grid Christianity. How would you go about doing that as a rap or hip-hop, whatever, sir? Yo, I'm coming off the lid because I'm off the grid and we're just getting started kicking it with Martin. He's smart and intelligent. It's so relevant to talk about the topics we're talking about. We're telling it. In fact, we're yelling it from the top of the mountain that inside you've got to flow like a fountain because faith is born from within. That's where it begins. And that's how we ascend to brand new heights and open up mics and talk about all these beautiful insights and have these conversations for true illumination to all listeners get all this inspiration. Wow. Wow. And honesty time, how many of those lines have you used before? Zero times. Really? Wow. Martin a- Martin and started. That was the first time. It, it's not a perfect <laughs> rhyme, but it's close, right? No, there's only one um, other word I've heard that used to be used from Martin. <laughs> off the lid is a, a way of saying freestyle where you're coming like straight off the brain, you know, off the yeah. lid. And then off the grid. I don't think I've ever used that phrase. So I think it was all it was all for you. All wow. fresh. Wow. That was brilliant. Going back to your parents then. What do they think of what you've you've achieved? Bearing in mind they weren't exactly pushing you towards it in the earlier days in uh, Syracuse. Yeah, well, they they love it, and they were pushing me towards it. I think in their own way, right? So on the block we lived in in Syracuse, mm-hmm. they brought in a special hip hop group from New York City. Oh, did they? Yeah, they brought in dancers and rappers from a Christian ministry in New York City, and. They set up a stage on sort of an empty lot on the block that I, we lived on. And I had the time of my life. I was so inspired by these artists from New York City who would take time to come do break dancing and rapping for our block, our little measly yeah. <laughs> boarded up house block, right? So I was so inspired. And then two of them took time with me. One, one said, hey, I want to hear what you're working on because they knew that I rapped, my parents told them. So I shared a verse with them and they were so, it was the first time I felt true encouragement coming from a grown up in this sense of like, you've got what it takes. You've got a gift. And then another, another one of the team took me aside and, and opened up the scriptures and said, you have a responsibility with this gift to bless and not curse, 
to encourage, to build up, to edify. And so he brought like characters like Jeremiah, who I'm named after. And these conversations with this hip hop group, I don't remember even their names, but I was so inspired. And I think my parents found ways to encourage and nurture the verbal kind of yeah. gifts that I had. And so they love it. They are probably, you know, throughout <laughs> throughout the seasons, they've, you know, worried about raising a family, yeah. three kids on rap music, right? But my grandmother's never quite understood what I do. And she has a, a little bit of dementia now. And someone asked her, what does your grandson do? She's like, oh, I think he's a circus performer. Uh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in her mind, I'm at the circus doing something. <laughs> oh, that's lovely, though. Oh. <laughs> I suppose to a lot of people, hip hop has only been around, well, as we know, it's, it's coming up almost for its 50th anniversary soon. But yeah. So, how do you go about making so much money out of it to keep your family afloat? Well, I wouldn't say so much money, but we made enough to live our normal, I think, lower middle class for a lot of it, bohemian. I'll say bohemian living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good. Word. We've had a lot of amazing people pour into this work. So, we had a child psychologist who had some money saved up to invest in something creative for kids. Wow. And so he helped us kick it off. He was like, I'm going to underwrite your salary for the next year to help launch this music for kids initiative. And so people like Andy Paulson and folks who saw the gifts that we carried and said, yeah, we want to invest in this. You know, we want to commission you. We had another gentleman, Hugh Davis, commission us to create an album shattering stigma around mental health. And, you know, this was in the early 2000s where mental health was not a big conversation at yeah. the time. And so we created an album, Is Anyone Listening? And it was projects like that that enabled us to be like, I think we can do this for a living. I think we can start a nonprofit, which is what we did, and write grants and work with schools and partner with other organizations almost like the community as our record label, so to speak. And we can, you know, provide these musical offerings that actually help the work of education, help the work of the good life in our community. Fantastic. I mentioned also you're a certified spiritual director. What does that actually mean, Jeremy? Yeah, good question. Um, most days I'm not sure, but it, it means mostly that I went to school for a couple of years to learn about this ancient art of holy listening. Mm -hmm. They call it soul friendship in the past. To have a soul friend is someone who may not be part of your daily experience in life, but someone you go to periodically to unburden yourself, to kind of have someone else bear witness to your journey with God, especially the stuff that's hard to share in settings where you're pretty well known. Mm -hmm. You almost need that safe space to really open up. Yeah. Yeah. So I studied for two years being kind of supervised as I hosted that space for others. One-on-one -on -one is usually how spiritual direction works. So I had supervision. I had to sort of chronicle, what am I doing during that time? What kind of questions am I asking? Mm -hmm. And then I, I was sort of an intern at a spiritual direction agency here that really helped me kind of hone that skill. Brilliant. You say the word direction though. I'm sure a few people go, oh, that means shepherding. That means you're going to be telling people what to do. What does direction mean to you, please, Jerry? I've tried to avoid it, you know, for a while, but mm -hmm. some things you, it's hard to really change the framework for. So spiritual direction is 
uh, more about question asking than answering, which obviously that sounds kind of odd with direction in there. So some people call it spiritual companioning. Again, soul friend is a wonderful term, I think, just to have a soul friend mm -hmm. that you can go to. But I think the direction part comes in in that there is a hunger, a desire for discernment. What does it mean to discern which way is God asking me to attempt? Mm -hmm. Which, and it's not always one road or the other. Sometimes it's, they're both equally good choices maybe, but what are your practices of learning to discern and hear God for yourself that will allow you to go with confidence into whatever you do choose? And so I think that's more what it's about. It's like almost preparing someone for their leap of faith. It's not like, hey, I think you should try this and I think you should do it this way. It's more, hey, how is that making you feel? And for instance, you know, a lot of people who work in churches, I don't know if this has been your experience ever, but there's sometimes a little manipulation there around like, I think God's calling you to this. Yeah. We prayed about it and we see yeah. you in yeah. this role, you know. I've been on the receiving side of that mm. and I've regretted saying yes to certain things because I didn't know myself very well. And I wasn't taking time to discern for myself. What is God delighting in you to do at this time? I thought, well, I guess I can just serve here and do it this way. And even if it's pure drudgery yeah. <laughs> and maybe there are seasons where we learn through that, but in general, it's preparing someone to step in knowing that God delights in them and that he gives us like this energy and delight to pursue something. So it's less giving direction and more preparing someone to get to the point where they've discerned, oh, this is the way I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to try I got you. it. I got you. I'm going to attempt this, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So where'd mm -hmm. you get your clients from, if that's the right word? Yeah. Directees is one word. Again, I get, it's a little formal it's not something you promote really or market for, you know, it's really word of mouth. It's really friendships I've had and people who have enough distance from me, but kind of like the way I, I live or yes. like what they've heard from me. So they'll call me up and say, Hey, can we set up a time and, you know, do a trial period. And sometimes these relationships last a few years. Sometimes it's like, I'm looking for this six month window where I have to make this decision. Yes. Right. And then some people are like, I need a break from, I need a sabbatical. And so I'm the person they go to for encouragement and permission giving when it comes to ordering your life around rest, which is again, very hard to do, right? You need a cheerleader when it comes to encouraging rest. So, so yeah, those are some of the ways. And then part of this brilliant network of prayer, as they train people in prayer for their organization, they require spiritual direction as one of the practices for on-ramping into leadership or on-ramping into, you know, whatever role they might take on. And so I get to join them for that season of growth and development as they train for their, their work. If we think back to a previous podcast I did with Wayne Jacobson, and we talked about a therapist and the difference between a good therapist and a bad therapist and a bad therapist, as he found out to his cost. And please, if you haven't heard the episode, please have a listen as to why his wife left him. Because the therapist was putting two and two together and suggesting that actually he's a bad man, you've got to leave. Whereas a good therapist would just ask questions and get the person to work it out themselves. 
have a listen to that episode, please. If um, I will, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, yeah it's, it's got a lovely story as, as a, an outcome at the end, by the way. Good. But I, I take it that's what you're trying to do here. You're just putting questions for them to think about rather than you telling them. Yeah, and also introducing them to spiritual practices they may have never tried, you know, because silence can be pretty counterintuitive to us to take time every day to go quiet. Yeah. And not talk to God or talk at God or wait for God to talk to us or talk at us, but simply commune, be together with, you know, the one who delights in you. And so I get to encourage people to start new practices that might help them kind of enter the next season of their life with gusto and not with a sense of dread. (laughs) How much would this be considered to be new age to some people? Which is a, a term that's been banned around. Oh, that's so new age. Yet when you say, well, what is new age? They go, mm, I don't really know, really. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it's think, new age. Right, right. Well, I think new age is just uh, attempts to borrow from the mystical Christian tradition and sort of present it in a kind of neutered form, if you will. So Tell me, I think it's... I'm glad you, seriously, I'm glad you said that. Because... You know, I've heard other people occasionally say that. So tell me more what you mean by new age is like borrowed from mystical Christian stuff, please. Well, because a lot of uh, what you hear out there about we're sort of divinely loved, you know, this phrase, you are enough is considered sort of a new age phrase, right? Like, oh, is it? Okay. You are enough. And by itself, that's not very helpful for someone. Yes. Someone wants to know is they are loved through and through, despite all flaws, despite all mistakes, and still, yes, because I'm created in God's image, I am enough, maybe even more than enough. Maybe I have more to share with others. And so my wife inspires me with this reminder of the great commandment ends with loving yourself, Mm. you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself and until you're filled up until you're like filled up to overflowing you're not going to be much good to others in fact you might even and i've experienced this receive the projection of someone else's deficit yes and feel the pressure of moralizing and sort of here's your task list as a human being which a lot of self-help is that but again i think it's all rooted in if you look at john of the cross And these figures who, you know, they did a deep dive into God's love and a deep dive into the darkness of the human condition at the same time. Everything I've experienced, what would be called new age is just an attempt to like tease out some of those threads. And sometimes the threads kind of snap and all they have is the thread to offer and it's not connected, right? It's not Mm -hmm. woven into tapestry that's come before. And that's where hucksters and that's where you know like hacks (laughs) hacks come in with like false hope because if they've taken a thread and they've pulled it out but they haven't kept it intact they haven't let the the thread be part of its greater tapestry and and i think that's what i think of i think of spiritual direction as a thread that connects us back into the greater tapestry of god's love yeah because I remember uh, a, f- a former vicar of ours, we've obviously moved over to Northern Ireland now, and he was saying that people would be amazed if they saw what the early Christians were doing. 
And if we see what we're doing now, we have lost so much. And it's as if like the new age people, whatever, have actually tapped into that. But that's what Christians were doing at an early age. I was going, oh, brilliant. That means we can teletransport ourselves like. I always think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who one minute was here and next minute was there with the eunuch. And it's like, oh, wouldn't that be great? But <laughs> maybe I was just taking it a bit too far. Right, right. But yeah, no, I think that's true. We would be very shocked, surprised, maybe even appalled by some of the practices we'd see going on, you know? Yeah. I'd like to major on now, that's okay. Back to something we alluded to just a, a few moments ago. Regarding your hospice work, when you speak to people knowing that the life is ending, what's the overriding sense you get from each person's to, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that, what, what's the overriding feeling you get from them? Yeah, I think... A lot of those studies about end-of-life regret are more inspirational pieces for your news feed, and they don't often show up at the deathbed. Mm -hmm. uh, someone is usually past that point, you know. I've heard the phrase, you live or you die how you lived. There's a certain way in which when someone is in that process, they're not even thinking about those questions. However, some do, and oftentimes it has to do with quality of relationships back to that Harvard study, you know, yes. there's an estrangement and they might not speak this out explicitly, but I feel in their presence and in the way they're trying to communicate that there's a deep desire that they had forsaken the priorities of their youth of like working so hard of feeling so much pressure to make ends meet that they left their kids out of that kind of experience yes. that they're that their work kind of overwhelmed their love. And so usually it's a deep hunger for, I think I missed out on the good life or even in Jesus phrase, the abundant life, which, you know, Kierkegaard loved to talk about the Jesus words about like, consider the lilies and the birds. Why are we so focused on the work side? The reason when we're letting the deeper desires starve to death and the deeper desires are i do want to be close with god i do want to be close with myself i do want to be close with my kids and my wife so i think that's the hunger i sense is man i spent so much time on things that weren't in the end that important that's kind of a consistent theme i think yeah with your spiritual director's cap on for people you know who hopefully have got many years left in them what would you say to them then about, well, this is what I've learned from people at the end of life. How does it come across then to people who are really querying what they're doing at the moment? Yeah, I think a large part of my spiritual direction practice is Sabbath coaching. And so I'm saying you need more margin. But the way to do that isn't to beat yourself up and say, I've done it wrong. It's simply to say, how can I take some time now to be generous, as generous with myself and my family as God is with me? And that generosity usually means you need to take some time to reflect, consider, retreat. You might even have to back to that e idea of a, a strike, you know, like a Sabbath revolt. Yes. You m might need to strike, <laughs> strike your life as it currently stands. <laughs> and sometimes there is a deeper call to shake things up and make real shifts towards family and towards neighborhood and towards being present 
I think you can't go wrong when you start moving in that direction. It'll feel both liberating and really scary because of the unpredictabilities around economy sometimes. But there's such a, a deeper grace available that keeps you going once you even start. Just sample Sabbath and see the power that it has to make you more available to the people that you care about most. Yes. I do remember one of my former bosses, we used to meet up as a family. He wasn't aware of this at the time, I don't think, but certainly the wife was. We used to choose a farm to go and meet where they had ice cream shops and things like that there. But the great thing about it, it was so far off the beaten track that you couldn't get a mobile phone signal and nobody <laughs> could contact him for like three or four hours. You could see like the stress starting to pour off him. It's nothing new, this, and yet nobody's learned anything from it. Why is that? Oh, good question. Well, probably because we don't know ourselves very well. You know, we're driven by things that, uh, what Thomas Keating called our programs for happiness. <laughs> you yes. know, we've got our, our little programs for security and survival. You know, yes. that takes up a lot of our time. Affection and esteem. I'm, I'm really motivated by how other, others perceive me. And finally, power and control. Like I want, my desires need to be met and I need to have control over that. And so once we begin to say, well, maybe I'm not in control of these and maybe I can let providence or whatever word you have for God's grace manifest in time, <laughs> you can welcome a fresh way of living, a fresh way of life that does give you the margin to be present, you know? Yeah. And I think it's not as hard as we make it out to be. Like you said, sometimes it's a half day out beyond the reach of a mobile phone. And sometimes it's 20 minutes in your favorite chair, just silent doing my, one of my favorite practices is called centering prayer, where you just take a word, love or God, and you just breathe it in and breathe it out, breathe it in, breathe it out. And pretty soon the thoughts that came like a hurricane are now down to like a, you know, just a sprinkle. And then mm -hmm. gradually they're gone, you know, and the, the sky is clear in your heart and mind. So lots of ways to do it. And for me, I did strike. I dropped out of a PhD program and took my family to Kansas City, Missouri from Milwaukee for a sabbatical because wow. we could sense that we were losing each other in relationship. We were losing the primacy of our marriage, the primacy of our connection to our kids as they were all, you know, school age and out yes. there and they weren't getting along even as siblings. So this disruption and this sabbatical that we felt compelled to experiment with yielded so much fruit, so much intimacy, so much connection that we're still kind of experiencing the undulating waves of grace from just saying yes to Sabbath as a serious approach to life, not as a slacker approach to life, because that's different. A lot of people think if I take Sabbath, I'm a slacker and that's not true. It's you're tapping into the root of your humanity, yes. your God-given humanity, and then you're you're going to have energy to do awesome stuff from that. So yeah, that's what I've learned a little bit of it anyway. I'd like to carry on on that in the remaining time, if that's okay, because I've often said, and I've probably said this to you on our, our first occasion of meeting when we well, unfortunately had technical issues, that we start off and I think we're going to be looking at such and such and we end up going somewhere completely different. So I wanted to talk to you about grieving and lamenting. Perhaps we could finish on that uh, as a, a quick summary. Sure. But the fact that you said, oh, well, I, I went from Milwaukee all the way down to Kansas City. Kansas yep. City. 
I take it that's more than just a little bus ride. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why go all that way to Kansas City when most people would say, yes, but I'm doing my PhD. I'm working hard on this. We'll do it next year. We'll do it manana. We will do it. Right. So you must have had other things put in place for you to do it. So tell us more why, why you did it, please. Yeah, great question. I think I did it because I could sense my soul being squeezed to the point of, again, revolt. Like I didn't know what to do. I was being asked by the PhD program to live the life of the mind. Mm -hmm. And I do like that. I, I enjoy, as you can tell, you know, yeah. <laughs> intellectual pursuits, but that's not all that life's about. And I had a deeper hunger. And I think my wife and I connect deeply on this. We had a deeper hunger for what was Jesus talking about when he said, I'm here to give you an abundant life, not just a get by, you're going to make it kind of life, but a deep intimate kind of connected life. Mm. And so we felt enough of that. And we knew of a community in Kansas City, a church community and some mentors of ours and even some family that lived there. And so we were stepping into a network of relationships where this sabbatical idea wouldn't be so weird. It was definitely weird yeah. <laughs> to a lot of people, but it wasn't weird enough that we felt completely you know, lost. It was more we had voices encouraging us and welcoming us, and it helped us create a new pace of life. We kept the kids out of school for a few years and homeschooled or unschooled. There's yeah, lots yeah. of terms for it, <laughs> but we had a blast. We went on field trips. We went on hikes. We tapped into nature, and we lived this grace-filled pace of life that was much slower. We slowed down so many miles per hour <laughs> that... By the time we were done, we were comfortable at a leisurely walking pace versus a, a sprint, you know, which is yeah. how we were living here before that. So when you're training for the long haul, I prefer to, you know, think of the Inklings and their long walks through the woods, discussing literature and theology and ending at the pub and having a pint and sharing friendship and joy like that. So all that to say, I went from like, feeling rushed in life to feeling like this leisurely stroll is actually a good pace to live from. I do meet people like this all the time, whereby you know they, they are just so incredibly busy, yet they're missing out on so much. And I'm sure they were listening to this very podcast and say, yes, but I want to do that, but I couldn't. I just right. couldn't do it. So from your spiritual director's hat, what would you say yeah. to them? Well, I would say the entire arc of creation is begging you to experiment with that, to actually say, maybe I could, maybe I could try to live more restfully. Because if you think about the beginning, if we go back, uh, humanity forged on day six and released into day seven, which is the Sabbath, right? Mm -hmm. And the book of Hebrews talks about this sort of, I don't think the Sabbath ever ended, guys. Like it's still here, you know, it's still available for us. In fact, not only available, it's sort of a command, but in a refreshing way, like, yo, come on over, experience delight. What is joy for you? And how do you build your life around delight and joy? So I would say, what invitations are already available to you right now to take Sabbath seriously, to welcome a restful approach to your work, your relationships, and usually it's there. If you take a moment to pause, go quiet, especially in the presence of a soul friend, 
who's bearing witness to your love for God. It's not that you don't love God and want the best uh, and want his best. Yes. It's we're not leaving enough space to really like experience it. We we're good at talking about it and going to events about it, but when it comes to living it, embodying it, experiencing it, we could use a little help. Wow. Thank you. And all this from rapping, your, your PhD <laughs> and everything else, as was already said so far, is that you are also a chaplain in a hospice going around to see how people are. We mentioned grieving and lamenting, of which I'm sure people are going through it at the moment or have gone through it. What does grieving and lamenting mean to you, good sir? Grieving and lamenting. Well, I'll start with lament, which is a deeply honest conversation with God before God where you name your pain and you don't try to solve it. You just name it before God. Uh, you complain like this is not okay. This is not how things are supposed to be. You know, if you look at the prophet Jeremiah, like he gets mad at God, you know, he gets pissed. He really wonders even if God has misled him. Yes. That's how far he goes in his lament. Of course, the whole book Lamentations is, you know, his book, but yeah, I think if, if we look to the prophets and the psalmists and we look to these deeply honest conversations with God, what we find is that there's no pressure to have it all figured out. As we begin to lament, we name the pain, we complain, but we remain. And to remain in relationship to say, I'm still here, I'm mad, but I'm still here. And I do want to know the way forward. I might not be ready for it yet. Lament is a powerful practice of being honest with no judgment, honest with no attempt at solving the riddle just then. And grief, I think, relates to that because obviously lament can be born of grief. And grief is just the language of love in the, in the wake of loss, you know. And to grieve also, if we think about taking time to having margin in our life, to grieve is to take time to face off with what are we really feeling mm. and what tears want to be born, what words want to be born from this grief, what sadness wants to take shape in my being that taps me into a universal human experience. You know, I'm not alone in this grief. So I think taking time is the, the biggest thing. So just this morning, I was commemorating alongside some other educators the loss of some young people that we've worked with. And to name those young people and to remember the things we really enjoyed about them, you know, yeah, what yeah. we loved and to welcome the grief, welcome not just the grief, but their legacy in the form of the love we had for them and the attributes that God communicated through their lives to us and say, yes, I want to continue your legacy in my life. And the grieving process, I think, is one way to do that. Thank you. Well, we're rapidly coming towards the end, so it's only fair for me to say that you're a lot younger than me, but you've got a CD coming out called a Midlife Crisis CD, which I get the yeah. feeling isn't folk. It's <laughs> no, it's not folk. In fact, Midlife Crisis is part of an acronym for MC, which the original term for rapper in hip-hop is MC, as in Master of Ceremonies. Ceremonies yeah. And so we've got these... MCs that started off as teenagers who are now in their 50s, you yes. know, hip hop is turning 50. I'm turning 45 the same month as hip hop turns 50. So 
I named it midlife crisis as a way to sort of reframe the conversation around human development at this age, but also where is hip hop headed from here? How do we engage much more mature topics about spiritual growth, the common good, the future of society, how to mentor youth, these kinds of considerations that hip hop's talking a lot more about now. Yeah, that's a, a new record that, yeah, will have some very honest lament type of poetry and also some beautiful like letters to a young poet style poetry. Like Rainer Maria Rilke, the poet, has a book called Letters to a Young Poet. And so I was inspired by that to, to wonder, what would I say to a young poet if I were even speaking to my younger self, so to speak? So, yeah, yeah. so that's kind of the theme of the record. I suppose hip hop is just another genre. You know, if we go back to the 1960s, early 1960s, and people in New York saying, oh, there's this new bloke called Bob Dylan. He's, he's just rubbish, he is. He didn't do too badly, <laughs> let's face it, with his type of poetry. And I suppose that's what's happened now with rap and hip hop. You know, it's survived the course. Absolutely. Yeah, I was uh, told it was a fad by some folks in my family, you yeah. know, when I was young and that fad turned into sort of a, a vocation yeah i think you're right i think some of the poets and prophets of our generation came up through hip-hop we'll talk about your christian hero in a couple of minutes time but you've already mentioned the inklings a couple of times yes, I have. and it's a subject that i love as well so tell me your interest on the inklings please so C.S. Lewis was my entree into the life of the Inklings as a community. And I've always been fascinated by the depth of friendship and conversation that was born in those circles at the Eagle and Child. And I even made a pilgrimage there with uh, my wife during our honeymoon. <laughs> this is the pub, the Eagle and Child in Oxford. Yes. Yes. So C.S. Lewis kind of became one of the most potent, plain speaking, but also poetic voices for the Christian faith. And so it was a revolution for me, almost a revelation to encounter his fiction, his science fiction, his Narnia series, his theology, and his sort of Chesterton inspired embrace of the good life. We're talking good food and beer. I grew up around a teetotaling environment, meaning no alcohol. And so yeah, I was wondering uh, about that. Yeah, beer was uh, a beautiful companion for <laughs> some of my theological considerations. Theology on tap was something that friends, you know, would call conversations together almost like the eagle and child, yeah. you know. So yeah, I think C.S. Lewis kind of brought me into this. He was like at the door, inviting me in to meet Chesterton, even though Chesterton was pre-Inklings, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, kind of introducing me to these wonderful writers and thinkers who all were reckoning and grappling with the Christian faith, with myth, and with the modern age. C.S. Lewis, he still looks very much around even today. It's amazing that what he achieved from some of his books. You mentioned Narnia. How influential has he been, do you think, to rappers and hip-hop artists from their youth? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I've never considered it. Uh, not very, because most hip-hop was born out of a proximity to poverty and death, and there's not a lot of space to consider fantasy or 
to be read to in many of those settings. And so I don't know how many rappers other than Christian rappers maybe have been inspired by C.S. Lewis, but I know for myself back to sort of like, how do I distill these phenomenal insights from Lewis and others into palatable poetic form for this generation, you know? And so that was a, a motivating factor for a lot of the verses that I wrote was I was struck by this line in mere Christianity. How do I turn that into uh, a couple measures of poetry that are going to really resonate with someone, you know, for those that are listening today then and saying, do you know what my son or daughter or whoever is listening to this really horrible, loud music. I can't stand it. I can't stand the swearing in it. It's all hip hop. It's horrible. How dare you, sir, talk about it like that from your point of view, what would you say to them? Well, I would say all culture is God's garden and all the energy that manifests in the form of song, even if some of it's maybe pretty grimy, gritty, and maybe even lewd. I think it's all born from this divine energy to express, to discover, to communicate. And so to recognize that the root desire is from God to create, you know, like Tolkien said, we are co-create. He didn't say co-creators. He had this cooler word for it where we like refract God's light into (laughs) all the things that we do. But I think I would say, remember the root, remember the source of creativity, that even when stuff goes awry in your eye, although Paul said to the pure, all things are pure, like you're able to find something good and redemptive in almost anything you're checking out. There's a sense in which this is God's garden, the wheat and the tares grow up together, but it's not your job to judge that necessarily right now. It's more to participate, to affirm before you challenge, to celebrate before you condemn. I think that's kind of the approach I'd take. Fantastic answer. Thank you. Well, I say we're going to find out now who your Christian hero is, someone that you can talk about for two minutes. Who is Jeremy Bryan, your Christian hero, please? My Christian hero. Oh, man. Well, I thought I was talking about him with C.S. Lewis, (laughs) and I think I might continue there because um, Robert Siegel, who was one of my professors at UW-Milwaukee, he, for his penultimate class, It was like his second to last semester on campus. I think he was retiring. They finally let him teach the class he always wanted to teach. And this is a a state university, a public university. So he was never able to sell them on this class. And he called it the gospel according to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so at the state university, they finally let him teach his dream class. So it's a complicated answer because Robert Siegel the professor and writer, he's my hero because that semester he unfolded the work of the Inklings and made us read almost all of it. We were burdened with a huge, (laughs) a huge amount of pages every night, but he designed the classroom in a way where we would debate about, you know, out of the silent planet, one of Lewis's books that brings up all these amazing ideas. So we would face off as a class and debate And he would bring forth these ancient mystical insights and he would talk about theology. And in a state university setting, this was very controversial. You know, this was like, whoa, this was like 
he was taking the ring to Mordor <laughs> this semester, you know? <laughs> so Robert Siegel is the person that pops to mind, even though I only knew him for a semester. We haven't kept in touch, but that semester was so formative for me to know that you could talk that in depth about faith and life in the center of a state public university encouraged me and still does to this day to take the beauty of the gospel into the very soul of society and not let it remain on the outskirts. Yeah. Debating, talking about it in a safe environment. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Which is what the Inklings were doing. I always remember the story of, it was a Tuesday and a Thursday, wasn't it? They used to meet up. If I remember yeah, rightly. That's right. Quite often in the Eagle and Child and also a, another pub. And as you said, they'd go walking and just talking and listening. Listening. Oh, how important <laughs> is that? But they're in a pub and it's like, what have you all written this week? Who can talk about it? <laughs> Tolkien says, well, I, I've got something here. And somebody in the group says, oh, no, not another flipping small person again. You know, <laughs> not these hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they realise it was going to take off, <laughs> which is brilliant. Thank so you amazing. so much, sir. It's been a, a sheer delight to hear what you've been saying. And yet again, we've got a podcast here where I thought we were going to talk about hip hop and, and everything else like that. And wow, was it anything but. If anybody would like to get hold of you, good sir, maybe just to buy your CD, for instance, that's coming out shortly. It's called Midlife Crisis. How can they get hold of you? Well, jeremyjohnbryan.com would be the place to start. That's my name, Jeremy, J-O-H-N, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N.com. And if you have show notes, I can send you the link there. Start there. You could reach out to me. You can check out some of the music I've created for young people, as well as the music for the grown-ups. <laughs> and also that connects you to all the things that I'm up to right now. So start there. Brilliant. Jeremy or Quill the Messenger, thank you so much. It's been a sheer privilege to have you today. Thank you so much, sir. Martin, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.